Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So, last week we began our study about confronting the sexual revolution. We began with talking about what does man, what does God tell us about man? And we looked at creation. God has made us in his image. Male and female, he created us after his image. He also informs us in his word about the fall. The fall impacts the way not only we see ourselves, but the way men and women interact with each other. We then talked about redemption and how the power of God has restored us and is restoring us to his image, not only in reconciliation, but finally with the hope of the new creation where we will be transformed and the desire and the drive that we had to fill the earth with other image bearers is going to be changed. Welcome back, Janelle. We're glad you came back safely. Praise the Lord. We've prayed for you. Yeah. And we look forward to hearing what the Lord did during your time in Africa. So we, then we talked about what happened. We talked about the new paradigm, and this is very important. The biblical understanding and the plainly evident design of our Creator is suppressed and replaced. Christianity is being seen as is being replaced as the moral norm, and Christians are now seen as morally deficient. The culture of guilt and innocence based upon the law has been replaced by shame-honor, where our standing before others is based on the level of shame perceived because we have fallen out of the currently accepted cultural norm. That makes sense? Now, Christian message about human sexuality humans created in the image of God, men and women's relationship is not the norm. And we are morally deficient because of our stand on biblical truth. And we bear the shame for what God said is good and true, unless we conform to the world. Now, Hebrews 12 points us to our Lord, who was the author and perfecter of our faith. He endured hostility against sinners, uh, of sinners against himself, and he bore the shame, he despised the shame, and he has sat down upon the right hand at the throne of God. Acts 5, you'll remember Peter and the apostles were commanded, do not speak in this man's name. And what did they do? They went out and spoke in that man's name. And what happened? Well, they were brought before the magistrates, and they were thrown into jail. You'll remember that Gamaliel said, hey, if this movement is of God, if you're, if, you're, if you're fighting against God, you're going to lose. And so based on that very wise counsel, they brought Peter and the apostles out before them, scourged them, beat them, and then in Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 40, uh, 41 actually, so the apostles went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And there's an excellent quote here by Harry Ironside, who at one time was the head of Moody and was invited to go to Dallas and preach there. This great quote, Jesus said, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am there, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is a promise for every believer. You and I are given the privilege not only of believing in his name, but suffering for his sake, following in his steps, bearing shame, and ignominy for Jesus' sake, and someday God the Father is going to honor all those 
who have borne shame for the name of his blessed son. Though well, this is Resurrection Sunday. And so we look at the other passage in Hebrews about our Lord Jesus, who in verse 13 is described as going outside the camp, and we are to go outside the camp and bear his reproach, his shame. We are coupled with him. Because here we do not have a lasting city. We are seeking the city that's to come. Through him, we can offer up a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, and we are not to neglect doing good and sharing for which such sacrifices God is pleased. We have the honor and privilege of being out of sync with our culture. And we can do it honoring God and do it joyously knowing that we are serving and sacrificing to our Lord an acceptable sacrifice. So I want to encourage us to not see us as victims, but see us as fulfilling the law and purposes of our God. Is that encouraging or what? Amen. Well, we looked at the history of this revolution. We looked at the four horsemen of modernity, which are Darwin, Freud, uh, Nietzsche, and Marx, and how we looked also at the contributing factors or the symptoms of this sexual revolution. The medical advances in antibiotics and the pill which made sex a leisure activity and separated it from its procreative abilities. We looked at the change in laws like legalized abortion and how that contributed to the sexual revolution. And then we talked about how we respond to the culture concerning morality and marriage. And of course, we're going to fully uphold the full counsel of God and biblical truth for both single and married people. We looked at homosexuality and same-sex marriage. We looked at the movement historically and, of course, biblically. And biblically, the homosexual movement, as we read in Romans, is a result of the denial of who God is and his design and his authority over our lives. Now, very important that we say this, that that particular sin is the same as any other particular sin. It is a refusal of the authority of God on our lives. So we are not picking out that particular sin and bludgeoning those people who have been ensnared in that sin. We are merely using this as one of the topics of how the Christian, Judeo-Christian message is becoming counter to the world's message. All right? So we are going to be speaking grace and truth to all people, regardless of their sin. It's important to say that. So we ask, how do we respond to the culture concerning homosexuality? Well, we start by emphasizing that God's design is good. We talk about compassionate truths, that these acts and other sins are expressly forbidden by God. God is not anti-gay. We're not going to also present a false promise concerning sanctification. People who are proud, people who are angry, people who are liars, people who have sexual sins in their past may still be tempted. We're not going to say that it's going to instantly change. While in some cases that is the case, we're not going to say blanket statement that's the case for everyone, right? And don't our own lives reflect that truth? Yes, they do, regardless of what our sin is. If somebody comes out to us, 
We're not going to reject them. We're going to listen to them. We're going to be kind. We're going to pray for them. If somebody from our own family or very close to us expresses that they have same-sex attraction or they are committed to a homosexual lifestyle, we're going to be like the, son, the father in the prodigal son in Luke 15. We're not going to argue, but we're going to stay in hope. We're going to pray, and we're going to share the gospel. We're also going to talk about boundaries, and we're going to do it in a respectful way. Now, that is the same whether we talk about heterosexual relations. Your child comes home from college, and they have their friend, and they want to sleep with their friend in the bedroom that they grew up in. They're not married. They may be the same or different sex. The problem is the same. And so you're going to have that discussion. You're going to have that discussion with them. And come to a biblical solution that doesn't violate your conscience, but is also in keeping with grace. Right? Right. All right. And then you get invited to a same-sex wedding. What do you do? Do you cut them off? Do you embrace them and celebrate it? Or do you, again, set boundaries in a respectful way? By the way, I just want you all to know, this is not theoretical for me. My nephew has set a date with his boyfriend to be married. My mom's third husband, Jack, had a son, David, who now wants to be known as Sonia, and is in process of transgender procedures. Okay, so this is not just theoretical. This is not something that is out there. And it's not out there for you either. How many of you know people who are affected by these questions? All right? You know, and you, you have a relationship with these people. This is a very practical application of godly truths. So, I have to receive sensitivity at my work. What do I do? And we talked about that. And if you have those issues and you don't want to talk about them, we should discuss them. Jeremiah 32, verse 27 says this, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? And we say, no, nothing is too difficult for God. Well, this week we're talking about the transgender revolution. The sexual revolution has always whispered promises of a godlike self-autonomy. After a generation of no-fault divorce, cohabitation, ubiquitous pornography, and the cultural unhinging of sex from marriage and marriage from childbearing, it is inevitable that Western culture is now decoupling sexuality from its most basic component, gender. The binary understanding, male and female, two parts, of human beings has been central to the human experience and our self-understanding throughout human history. The ability to transform gender and have gender reassignment surgery is so new, starting in the 60s and really being popularized in the 90s, it was not even considered a prominent part of the homosexual rights movements from the 60s. And so there are redefinitions, sexual orientation, according to Time Magazine's Kathy Steinmetz, determines who you want to go to bed with, and sexual and gender identity determines what you want to go to bed as. That's today's definitions. And so you have the definition of sex, one's biological and physical attributes, gender. Previously identified with sex, now is being seen as socially constructed roles, behaviors, activities, and attributes that a given society considers appropriate for men and women. 
What philosophical mindset is reflected in that statement? Remember we talked about the history of philosophical thought, modernity, and postmodern thinking? That's a reflection of postmodern thinking where the erosion of truth and absolutes. Listen to this again. Gender is seen as a socially constructed, not an identity that's given to us by God in his word and reflected in creation and design. No. It's a regional social construct that a given society seems appropriate. That's a postmodern definition. Now, we have to admit that there are some notions of masculine and femininity that are socially constructed. Now, it was totally appropriate, you know, 40, 80, 100 years ago to dress little boys in dresses. And that was not considered, you know, to be feminine. That was just the way little boys were dressed. There are some cultural things. We now come into words like transvestite, transsexual, transgender, and gender dysmorphia, which used to be identified as a gender identity disorder. It's that persistent feeling of identification with the opposite gender and discomfort with one's own assigned sex that results in significant distress or impairment. Open up your copy of God's Word and go to Romans chapter 1. And this is a really key point in the entire discussion of transgender issues. Romans chapter 1 and verse 28. And we're familiar with Romans. And we're familiar with the effects of sin upon our world and ourselves. If you look at Romans 1 verse 28, it says this, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to what? A depraved mind. The mind, the thinking, the self-concept, reality is impacted by our refusal to acknowledge God. And that's where a lot of this confusion is generated from. It's the impact of sin. Not just in this area of human sexuality, but all of life. In some European countries, preschools are now prohibiting the use of gendered pronouns with similar prohibitions being now prescribed in North America. Like Vancouver, British Columbia forbids the use of girl or boy or his or her. Oprah Winfrey was a major champion of that, brought children on board and both she and the audience were distressed at parents who refused to have their children undergo surgery or hormonal treatment. Parents of children at Janie Elementary School in Washington, D.C. were under a welcoming schools project, which was part of the human rights campaign, and a teacher who had formerly been Mr. Reuter was now being introduced as Ms. Reuter. And the principal, who was a dedicated lesbian, chastised parents and told parents that they needed to undergo counseling if they were insisting upon teaching their children a historic, biological, and biblical God-honoring view of men and women. And a host of experts were brought in, 
all dedicated to that. And you think about that, and you say, okay, well, what's going to happen here? How will the school respect the naturally ambivalent but politically incorrect feelings that some children may have toward Ms. Reuter? Does the school's rush to embrace Reuter's transition create an unsafe situation by brushing off or stigmatizing these children? What if a child has an emperor's new clothes moment? And they shout something like, that's not a lady, that's a man. Will the child have to undergo education, re-education? Parents will have reason to fear that if they teach their children traditional and biblical views of gender and sex, then their child will face name-calling, labeling, bigot, or retaliation. Sit down and shut up, please, seems to be the word of the moment. Well, we're saying please because obviously we're being polite and tolerant. President Obama instructed public schools in May of 2016 to let transgender students use the bathrooms matching their chosen identity, and he threatened to withhold funding for schools that did not comply. Now, that was overturned in February of 2017, you may remember, by uh, the new administration. So, we have to ask the question, what has been the result of transgender experimentation? Has there been a resolution of these gender dysmorphic feelings? Has it been a point where these people who have suffered through these feelings and this orientation and this alienation have been resolved through hormonal treatments Surgical operations? And the answer is no. The very people who actually helped develop some of those sex reassignment surgeries from John Hopkins University have stopped doing those surgeries because study after study indicate that this is not a solution. Suicide attempts are alarmingly common among transgender individuals. 41% try to kill themselves at some point in their lives. Now, some people would say, well, that's because of the discrimination and the bigotry of the general public who are Eastern European, Western Europeans, and are sexually repressed. Well, there's two problems. Number one, it ignores, number one, Romans 1.28, that says that there is a thinking problem, that there's a problem with the mind, that people who think this way have a problem with their thinking. Their mind has become corrupt. It's not, this is not a moral or ethical judgment. It is instead a fact. Individuals who believe they are a different sex than that of their bodies are psychologically wrong. They are psychologically ill. This is a situation to be pitied, not something that needs to be medically treated. The second problem is the discrimination theory of suicide does not hold up when compared to other minority groups who suffered disproportionate real and perceived amount of bigotry and negative discrimination. The Center for Disease Control's numbers on suicide indicate the highest rate of suicide over the past 15 years or so belong to white people. In contrast, most of the years surveyed blacks, black people had the lowest suicide rate among all ethnicities. You would think that that would be the highest wouldn't you? In our, especially with what you're hearing in the media? That's not the case. So, whew, 
How do we respond to the transgender revolution? A church should be the safest place to talk about, to be open about, and struggle with gender dysmorphia or gender dysphoria. The Bible challenges churches to reflect Christ by embracing individuals struggling with sin, no matter what type of sin. We are to be, number one, a compassionate community. The first blank there is a compassionate community. If a local politician that was well-known came in to our doors and someone who identified as the opposite gender came in, who would receive preferential treatment? James challenges us to not be individuals who show partiality. The church's response to those who identify as transgender or to those who struggle with gender dysphoria but aren't actively identifying as transgender must be with integrity to say, you are welcome here, you are loved here, we want to be a blessing to you. So we need first to be a compassionate community. Too often we can give the impression that Jesus came to seek and save good people. The reality of human sinfulness explains why there are those who are deeply troubled and confused about something as fundamental as their gender and self-identity. The brokenness of this world explains why there are entire ideologies, theories, and systems of thought constructed by sinners in order to justify their sin. Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 20. Jesus, quoting from Isaiah, said a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. Jesus describes his ministry as one in which a bruised reed will not be broken off by him and a smoldering wick he will not quench. His lordship won't inflict further stress to the point of breaking people. In powerfully evocative and compassionate terms, Jesus describes his ministry to those who are hurt, dejected, and hopeless. That imagery is especially apt when we read about the emotional distress of gender dysphoria. We will never and should never mock or joke about that pain and that suffering that people who undergo this feel and experience. These are our neighbors to be respected and served, not freaks to be despised. We should stand against any bullying that gets done. Second, we should be a listening community. Most of us will not experience working with, dealing with people who are going through these struggles, these struggles of mind because of our fall into sin. And when they do, we need to avoid the rush to immediately Give the solution. First, listen. If you don't know much about gender identity issues and you don't know what the struggle is like, if someone says you don't understand, well then, maybe say, very possibly, tell me about it. Listen before we apply the bomb of Gilead. We therefore need to be a convictional community. We need to hold to God's word. Ephesians 4.15, we need to speak the truth in love. 
we must recognize that God has a sovereign purpose for creating us as embodied creatures, as male and female. And we need to be able and willing to communicate that truth. Communicate it in love, in gentleness. But we need to do that. We also need to be a gracious community. What does grace tell me? It tells me that I fall short, so do you. Grace tells me I'm still loved, and so are you. Grace is there for me in my repentance and for you in yours. Grace says forgiveness is always available. It doesn't make us proud. Our salvation isn't of our undoing. It's a great quote by Al Mohler. And I'm sorry for the printing being so small here, but you should have that on your handout. Do you have that quote? It is urgently important that Christians affirm that we are not smarter or more morally righteous than those around us. We are instead the beneficiaries of grace and mercy of God because we have come to know salvation through Christ and guidance and faithful living through the gift of Holy Scripture. Well, the next thing that we need to be is we need to be a victorious community. When we hear about these things, when we hear about the fact that our children, our grandchildren, may be impacted by this and may be sought to be programmed by our culture, by perhaps their schools, we need to recognize that not only are we not accommodating ourselves to the sins and heresies, but we must not assume that the sexual revolution will be triumphant and progress upward and onward. The sexual revolution will not keep its promises. It can't. It never can. If Christians see ourselves as a people who are losing a culture, rather than people who have been sent on a mission to a culture, we'll just be outraged and hopeless. But that's not our message. That's contrary to our message. We have a message of hope. And we need to be an open community with borders. We need to be open to people to come in, invite people to come in. But there also have to be borders, just like we talked about. If your child comes home from college and they want to sleep with Sue or, or Sam in their bedroom that they were raised in, there are some boundaries. We're an open community with borders. John Piper offers something very helpful. He says this, So if I had a neighbor next door to me who was biologically male and everybody knew it, and he introduced, to me, he introduced me to himself as Sally... If I met him for the first time and I saw him the next day, I might avoid calling him anything. But I would probably default to Sally. I probably would until there was a relationship that would go deeper to see whether I could be of any help. So that's one concession that Piper is willing to make because of the arbitrary nature of names. Jody Chakravarti as a name that's either male or female in India. We know people who are named Pat. And there are other names that are a bit arbitrary. We all know about the song that Johnny Cash sang, A Boy Named Sue. Right? There's a little arbitrariness there. So we're going to be, Piper is saying we're going to be patient. We're going to wait until we have a deeper relationship. We're going to address it. Second, he gives another example. In the office where we worked, I was compelled to identify every so-called transgendered person by the pronoun they preferred in all of my emails or conversation. I had used she for he or he for she 
If I would get disciplined in the office, at that point I would say to my superiors, I cannot treat he's as she's or she's as he's. I will draw a line and say that I will not do that. I cannot buy the whole package. I would be lying to call a he a she. I am not lying to call a male Sally. That's a culturally arbitrary, weird fluke. But I am lying if I say about a true Jim who wants to be called Sally, she. And it would be contrary to my understanding of sexuality. I would start looking for another job. I may have that challenge in my own job as someone in HR and someone whose company is dedicated to an inclusion and an acceptance that includes this issue. Like I said, this is not theoretical for me. This is real. So this is part of the reason why I want to work through this. I want to see what the scriptures say. I want to understand how this impacts my world and how I can impact my world for Christ, for his glory. Christians should get as good a grasp on the question of transgenderism as we can, whether or not we have transgender friends. Questions, comments? Deb's niece wants to be her nephew. So, two different situations. I mean, obviously I know her, her origin, her, well, still, what gender she is right. and mm-hmm. what her name that she was given at birth. She has legally changed her name. So the niece has legally changed her name I, to a male's name. Uh, I, along with her mother, my sister, <clears throat> we still call her by her birth name, her female name. Um, I just... I, for me, I feel like calling her by the male name is participating in the rebellion. Yeah. You're participating in a rebellion if you call her by the male name, and you're buying into her false reality. Right. Um, that, to me, um, I didn't. I didn't struggle too much with that decision. Mm-hmm. But what do you do? Like you were kind of describing a little bit. Um, like uh, when I was still a bank teller um, a few years ago, there would be someone coming to my window. To be honest with you, I couldn't tell mm-hmm. which gender they originally were. Right. So we come into those contacts with people, uh, and we don't know whether they're male or female. Whether or not they have a gender dysphoria is not the issue. We just don't know. So, by, so, appearance. by appearance. So let's say you know they introduce themselves as. Joe, mm-hmm. and I'm not totally sure. <laughs> they introduce themselves as Joe again, a name that could be, where's <laughs> Joe Goad? Where's okay, well, let's say it's a name <laughs> Joe back there. Not, let's say it's a name that is not known as female. Okay, male, right. But it's clearly a male name. I mean, if this is the first time I'm meeting this person. Um, what do you do? I mean, I have no other name to call <clears> them by. Mm-hmm, right, you have no other name. And then, so I would probably use that name, but then you get to what you were talking about with the pronouns. Right. 
I'm not totally sure. Right. Um, so in this case, let me give it to the class because not everybody may hear what you said. So in this case, Deb, working as a teller, comes into somebody's name. She doesn't understand if the person is male or female by their physical attributes. And she has a name, and the name may be what? Generic. Generic or historically what appears to be the opposite gender. Yeah. So the question is, what do you do? Dave is, Deb is saying that she's going to first use that person's name by default, like Piper was saying here. All right. But then, what do you do in the future with pronouns? And some, you know, what would you guys do? I mean, especially. Almost go with hey you. What else? Someone, someone could be fired for that. Didn't you? <clears throat> yep. Don't use a pronoun. Use a generic. You could also ask the person, should I call you Ms., Mr.? You know, what, what do you prefer? Ms., Mrs., Mr.? What should your title be? You could do that. What else? Rick. Okay. Yeah, well, you know, where you, you can speak where you have a gospel influence, and you can speak to, you know, you know, the people who you have an ear for, and you're talking about righteousness in all aspects. Sexuality, you know, is going to be one of those, right? You're going to be faithful, you're not going to compromise. It is your brother's house, so it is not yours to make that call. So, one more, one more and then we have to move on. Yes, people who are ambiguous, appear to be ambiguous, are used to that. And they corrected and you. Gotcha. So there, people will self-identify in that regard. Well, we need to move on. Radical feminism. Yes, go ahead. Right. And they Right. Good. Excellent point. Excellent point. Taking the example from Daniel, Meshach, 
uh, Shadrach and Abednego. Good, excellent. Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, you know, but he kept, kept being known by Belt, you know, Daniel, his Hebrew name. Uh, good point. Well, we're going to move on. And again, open for discussion afterwards, but we have lots of ground to cover here. So feminism. What is feminism? Female power. Lots of different flavors to that question, aren't there? And there are different understandings of what feminism is over time. You know, the first wave of feminism was the suffrage movement. Uh, 19th and early 20th century focused mainly on suffrage alongside other legal rights in Canada, the U.S., and and, uh, and, uh, the U.K. Uh, The second wave was that of... uh, in U.S. and then spread to Europe concerning sexuality and reproductive rights. And now the third wave is the removal and elimination of patriarchy, uh, the leadership of men and men being seen as leaders in multiple contexts. So their claims and complaints of feminists against the church, what would the claims and, and uh, complaints of feminism against the church be? I'm sorry? Can't preach. Can't preach. I'm being oppressed. It's like that Monty Python section, segment of the film. Help, help, I'm being repressed. I'm sorry, we'll cover that later. <laughs> Obviously not a Monty Python fan over here. <clears throat> All right, so the question is, um, you know, can't preach. You know, another complaint against the church might be that you know, women are uh, suppressed. They are put in subservient roles. Uh, the church always talks about women being subservient and submissive to men. There's no equality, um, as evidenced by the fact that they can't preach or hold office. And that's becoming less and less an issue, isn't it? Because more and more churches and denominations are having no problem with that. Well, what is the case today? Well, the case today is that you know, many, many situations, many uh, secular movements have arisen claiming to be concerned with women's rights. Their efforts generally have been detrimental to the status of women. The feminist movement of our generation is a case in point. Feminism has devalued and defamed femininity. Natural gender distinctions are usually downplayed, dismissed, despised, or denied. As a result, women are now being sent into combat situations, subjected to grueling physical labor, uh, once reserved for men and exposed to all sorts of indignities in the workplace and otherwise encouraged to act and talk like men. Meanwhile, modern feminists heap scorn on women who want family and household to be their first priorities. In doing so, they disparage the role of motherhood, one calling that is exclusively and uniquely feminine. So, how do we respond to the claims and complaints of some, not all, some Feminists. Well, Scripture never discounts the female intellect, downplays the talent or abilities of women, or discourages the right use of women's spiritual gifts. But whenever the Bible expressly talks about the marks of an excellent woman, the stress is always on feminine virtue. The most significant women in Scripture were influential not because of their careers, but because of their character. So, again, going back to the creation, fall, redemption, how are how do the scriptures view and reveal God's view of women? Well, first, that men are men and women are equal in creation, fall, and redemption. Now, I'm going to ask you, our Bible scholars in the room, 
How does the Bible illustrate that? What is there in the Scripture that you are aware of that illustrates the exalted role and purpose and character of women in the Scriptures? Because the radical feminist, the one who is opposed to God's Word, will say that all of the Judeo-Christian revelations are only used to suppress women. What is the actual reality? You who know Scripture, what would you point to? I'm sorry? The Proverbs 31 woman. Now, did the Proverbs 31 woman have work that she brought outside the home? Yes. Right? She was known for her wisdom. What else? What else? Other examples of how the Scriptures exalt and raise up women. And in contrast to the culture around them. Pardon? Deborah, the judges, prominent women, prominent women in the scriptures. Who are prominent women in the scriptures? You have Deborah, you have Esther, and Esther herself was in a culture that was strongly against her. Abigail. Abigail, okay, a very wise woman who had a fool for a husband. Lydia, all right, what else? Who else? Mary. Mary. The disciples of Jesus, many women, right? Rick. Rahab, okay. Rahab was a woman of faith. All right. And she's in the line of, and again, who else? Sarah, okay. All right. The Samaritan woman, yeah, example. Mm-hmm. Yep. Jesus addressed the women, that's right. And if you look at it, Genesis 1, men and women are created equal and bear God's image. Genesis 2, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, wives are seen as venerated partners and cherish companions to their husband, not merely slaves or pieces of household furniture. Exodus 20, God commanded to children to honor who? Father and mother. Mother and father, both. First Peter 3, women are specifically identified for support and protection and set apart for special honor. Ephesians 5, husbands are commanded to love their wives specifically and sacrificially as Christ loves the church, even if the cost of their own lives. This is counter to the culture of that time. Wives were simply seen as childbearers. Sexuality was outside the house, all right? The scriptures elevated the relationship between men and women. Luke 8, Luke 10, Jesus' disciples included several women, a practice almost unheard of among the rabbis of that day. John, as just mentioned here, John 4, Christ first recorded explicit disclosure of his own identity as the true Messiah was made to who? Peter? No, a Samaritan woman. Matthew 9, Luke 7, John 4, he always treated with women with extreme dignity. Luke 18, Luke 7, Luke and John 8. Jesus blessed women's children, raised their dead, forgave their sin, restored the virtue and honor of fallen women. He exalted the position of womanhood, women themselves. And in Acts, Corinthians, Romans, Philippians, women became prominent in the ministry of the early church. On the day of Pentecost, when the New Testament church was born, women were there with the chief disciples praying. Some were renowned for their good deeds, hospitality, 
sound doctrine, and spiritual giftedness. One even helped to correct a prophet. Even the Apostle Paul, who is sometimes characterized falsely as a male chauvinist, regularly ministered among, with, and praised those women. He recognized and applauded their faithfulness and their natural giftedness. The Old Testament economy. Women were given an inheritance. Single women were given protection and rights. Pregnant women were given special laws to protect them and their unborn children. So anyone who raises the specter that the Jews and the Christian church is against women is absolutely ignorant. They do not know what they're talking about. And they're to be pitied and graciously corrected. Well, you know, I understand how you feel, but have you ever thought about this? Then open up the scriptures. Are you aware that the Bible says this about women? Are you aware that the Bible exalts from women being a lower part of society that the Christian message came along and raised us up to be his sons and daughters, princes and princesses. He elevates us from male or female, from worthless and useless to a useful point of being a blessing to others. Yeah. Even the pagans recognize that. You know, Chrysostom, who was an eloquent preacher of the fourth century, recorded that one of his teachers, a pagan philosophy named uh, Libanus, once said, heavens, what women you Christians have. <laughs> because he recognized that they were elevated in their society. Well, Christian women, Christian women converted out of pagan society were automatically freed from a host of demeaning practices, emanated from the public debauchery of temples and theaters where wisdom, w- women were systematically dishonored and devalued. They rose to prominence in home and church and in the marketplace where they were honored and admired for feminine virtues like hospitality, ministry to sick, industriousness, care and nurture family, and the loving labor of their hands. And that has always been the trend. So, like we've talked about so far, we have a message of hope for those people who feel oppressed, for those women who have been oppressed by sinful men and sinful women. We have a message of hope to give to the exaltation that Christ has. He is the one who raises our head. He is the one who lifts us up. Whether we're male or female. And he restores that glorious image of God that he created to be within us. And so instead of being an angry feminist ready to rip apart all the patriarchal residue in our culture, we can have women who are thankful for what God has done in and through them and how he designed them and how he created them. We have a glorious message of hope. I hope that as we run into people who have these contrasting ideologies, these contrasting thoughts and philosophies that we are able with grace and truth to be a minister to them and to serve them.
All right. Let's close with prayer. Father, I thank you that we have a glorious message to bring to the nations, that you are indeed worthy of our attention and care, that we would be faithful in giving a message of hope for those who are downtrodden, to those who are alienated, to those who have been racked by the sin of this world and who have felt oppressed even by their own sin. But I pray that you would use us in a glorious way. That we would not be so against the world, but that we would be seen as pro-world. That this glorious message of hope would be our mission. That Christ would be exalted. And Lord, that we would see a liberation of those who are captive to their own sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did indeed come to set us free. And you say in your word that whom you set free will be free indeed. And we thank you that your resurrection power, the power that we celebrate today, the fact that we celebrate today, can be seen in the lives of the men and women around us. And you can use us to demonstrate that power and to communicate that power to others. And we praise you in your son's glorious name. Amen. Amen.